All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them back up to Genesis 38. So since this is Reformation Sunday, I'll begin with a Reformation-themed introduction. Um, For those of you unfamiliar with the Reformation, here's a simple definition. Uh, The Reformation was an act of God in which he raised up men to expose the apostasy of the Roman church and to recover the gospel of grace. So you see, for many years, the Roman church slid further and further into decline, um, essentially abandoning the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. As such, when the reformers pointed out error, and as they sought to bring much-needed reform to the church, they were charged with novelty. Um, The Roman church accused Martin Luther, John Calvin, men such as them, they accused them of creating something that was new. For instance, uh, Jacopo Sadoletto, he was a Roman Catholic cardinal. He wrote a letter to Geneva in 1539, He was calling the Genevans to return to Rome. If you know the history, then you'll know that Calvin was actually expelled from Geneva in 1538 for refusing to serve the Lord's Supper to those who were in open, unrepentant sin. So when Sadoletto wrote this letter calling the Genevans to return to Rome, Calvin was no longer their pastor. But when they received this letter, who do you think they reached out to? Well, they reached out to John Calvin. And so, Sadoletto, he charged Calvin with being an innovator, as leading people into numerous novelties. And Calvin, he replied, our agreement with antiquity is far greater than yours. He went on to say, all we have attempted has been to renew that ancient form of the church, which was at first distorted by illiterate men of indifferent character and afterward mangled and almost destroyed by the Roman pontiff and his faction. So Calvin replied by saying that it was the Roman church that distorted the truth, who almost destroyed the church. It was the Roman Catholic church who was doing something new, he's saying, not us. So this charge of novelty... This charge of creating something new was not unique just to Sadoletto. Um, This was a common charge that was hurled at the reformers. Um, We see evidence of this in Calvin's Institutes. Um, In the prefatory, prefatory address to King Francis I, this is what he wrote. They, so they being the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Church, they do not cease to assail our doctrine and to reproach and defame it with names that render it hated or suspect. They call it new and of recent birth. And by calling it new, they do great wrong to God, whose sacred word does not deserve to be accused of novelty. Indeed, I do not at all doubt that it is new to them, since to them both both Christ himself and his gospel are new. So in case you didn't catch that, Calvin was saying what we believe is not new. It's the Roman church. He says, I have no doubt that for them, Jesus Christ and the gospel is new to them. You see, these accusations of novelty were misplaced because it was the Roman church that embraced novelty. They were the ones who turned to a new belief system. Calvin and the other reformers, they were returning to the old paths. It was the Roman church who was going down a new path. 
You see, the Roman church had veered so far off course that the church was almost unrecognizable. And because the Roman church had so distorted the truth of God's word, God raised up men to steer the church back to its ancient paths. So the Reformation was essentially the recovery of God's truth laid down in the scriptures. It was the renewal of the one holy apostolic church, and it was the renewal of salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. You see, the Reformation was necessary because the Roman church had veered so far off course. She left her heritage and was taken up with the inventions and devices of men. In some ways, in some ways, that's what we see with Judah here in Genesis 38. I want to be careful how far I draw connections between Judah and the Roman Catholic Church, but we do see Judah veering off course. He leaves the ways of his father. He marries Canaanite women, lives just like the Canaanite women. In many ways, he is walking in the ways of his uncle Esau. He's not walking in the way of his father Jacob. If you remember Esau, he did not walk in the ways of his father. He married Canaanite women. He lived like the Canaanites. He did not live like the covenant children of God. And that's the course that Judah is taking here in Genesis 38. He's veering off course and stands in need of reform. And from the looks of the greater narrative here in the book of Genesis, it looks like God will use these events here in Genesis 38 to grab hold of, Ju- uh, to grab hold of Judah. Because when we come to Genesis 43, we're going to see Judah as a transformed man. Chapter 37, he's going to say, hey, sell my brother. Let's sell him into slavery. 38, we see all kinds of despicable acts. And then in chapter 43, we're going to see him pledging his own life on behalf of his younger brother, Benjamin. So that's down the road a little bit. We'll get there. But for now, we are in Genesis 38. I'm going to read the last portion here from verses 24 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll ask the Lord for help. So Genesis 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and we come by the power of 
the Holy Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are your children. And this morning, we need your help. We are weak, we're frail, we lack understanding. We're quick to wander away, to veer off course. So we need you to work in us and to continue working in us if we are to remain faithful. We need you, O God, to continually open our eyes to the infinite beauty and the infinite glory of Christ. We're so easily distracted by that which our eyes can see physically. So help us to see that which is more glorious, that which is more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. I pray the same for our brothers and sisters at Grace Family Church in Pearland. Pray you be with Brian and with Morgan as they shepherd the flock that you've entrusted to them, your flock. Help them to persevere pray that their congregation would be a beacon of hope in the city of Pearland. And I pray that we will be a beacon of hope here in Pasadena. I pray that our light will not be extinguished, but will shine brightly. And I pray this not for our name to be known, but for you to be known and to be glorified in our midst. Help us, I pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, amen. So as many of you know, Genesis 37 through 50, so through the end of the book, it's concerned with Joseph, with his rise to power in Egypt, and then his family's subsequent move to Egypt. So why Genesis 38? Why this chapter about Judah and Tamar? After all, this is a pretty offensive and distasteful chapter. So why is it here? Well, as I thought about this question, you know, it seemed reasonable to deduce that this chapter is here to give us more insight into the man who was willing to sell his brother into slavery. And then we also see, if we think about the bigger picture, we see the beginning of Judah's transformation. Remember why he convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery in chapter 37 and chapter 43? He will pledge to give his life on behalf of his brother. But that can't be the primary purpose that that's here. Yes, that's helpful. But that can't be the primary purpose because what we have at the end of the chapter is a birth narrative. Namely, the birth narrative of one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. So as I was pondering that, I looked to history for help. And one man who was helpful was the English Puritan, John Trapp. John Trapp said this about Genesis 38. He said, this is recorded that we may consider and admire the utter abasement of our Lord Christ, who would be born not only of holy, but of impure parentage. If you're familiar with the genealogies of Scripture, then you know that King David was born from the line of Judah. And you also know that King Jesus, according to the flesh, according to his humanity, was born from the line of Judah. And here in Genesis 38, we're reminded that that line was filled with immorality. Remember, these are the ancestors 
of Jesus Christ. And so while this line was filled with immorality, we also learn from Scripture, and we're grateful for this, that Jesus was not tainted by the sin of his ancestors. He was not born of Adam according to Adam's sin. Yes, he took on our flesh and likeness, but he was not born like Adam. He was not born like Judah, inherently wicked, inherently evil. He was not tainted by the sins of his ancestors, for he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He was not defiled by this lineage, yet he was born from this lineage. As John Trapp notes, this was to show his readiness to receive the most notorious offenders that come unto him with bleeding and believing hearts. By his purity and passion, all our sins are expiated and done away. So here we are in Genesis 38 with the story of Judah and Tamar, which reveals to us, yes, the type of man who is willing to sell his brother into slavery, But ultimately, it reminds us that God redeems even the vilest offenders. So before we walk through, just go through the outline that's on page five in your worship guide. Um, You can follow along if you'd like. But just to give you an idea of the passage where how we'll look at it, verses one through 11, here we have the story of Tamar and Judah, um, really Judah's sons. We'll see the two oldest sons of Judah, they die, and they leave Tamar childless. The youngest son, Shelah, is too young at this point to be given to Tamar in marriage, so Judah sends Tamar back home to her father um, to wait for Shelah to become of age. Then in verses 12 through 19, we have this encounter between Judah and Tamar. Um, This is the section that is marked with deception and immorality. After this, in verses 20 through 26, Judah, he will be exposed As we see, he's ready to cast the first stone, yet he is the one with the greater sin. He condemns, but yet he has done the very same thing. And this passage will conclude with Tamar giving birth to two boys, to twin boys, and one of these boys, Perez, he is the ancestor of David and of Jesus, according to the flesh. So as we walk through this passage, we'll be reminded of the seriousness of sin. We will see the beginning of Judah's transformation, and then we'll be reminded that the Son of God willingly associated with the clan of Judah, a clan tarnished by immorality. And this points to the the fact that Jesus truly is a friend of sinners. So now that you have a general idea, let's turn our attention to these first 11 verses of Genesis 38. This really provides us with the context for what is to come. In verse 1, we see it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. So he's leaving his brothers. And then in verse 2, we see that he marries a Canaanite woman. Um, This should clue us in right here that Judah is veering off course. This should not surprise us after what we've seen in Genesis 37. Remember, he's the one that had the great idea. Let's not kill our brother. He, after all, is our brother. Let's just sell him so we can make some money on him. So here we, 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 we should not be surprised when we see what kind of man Judah is. But we do see further evidence here that he is walking in the way of Esau, not in the way of Jacob. I don't want to belabor this point, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all took wives from outside of Canaan. 
They were careful not to marry Canaanite wives. Esau, on the other hand, disregarded the ways of his father. He took Canaanite wives unto himself, and that showed us as we were, really we saw ultimately at the end of chapter 36 that Esau, he was wandering away, moving away from the blessed presence of God. Whereas Jacob, his brother, not a perfect man by any means, we know that, but Jacob was walking in the ways of his father, demonstrating that he was moving toward the blessed presence of God. So here in the early verses of Genesis 38, we see Judah going the way of the world, departing from his brothers and turning aside to this Adulamite named Hira. And so the Adulamites, they were one of the tribes of Canaan. They were one of the tribes considered alongside the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites. In fact, the Adulamites will be conquered by Joshua. Wednesday nights, Tommy will get there eventually where we'll see uh, when Israel comes into the land, this is one of the peoples that they conquer. And so as such, we see Judah, he's turning aside from his brothers, and he comes across this man here in verse 2, this man named Shua, or I'm sorry, in verse 1, um, this man named Hira, the certain Adulamite. And we see in verse 12 that they become friends. So I want you to make a mental note of this that Judah, he becomes a friend of a Canaanite, and subsequently we're going to see him living like the Canaanites. So in verse 1, we see Judah leaving his brothers and becoming friends with the Canaanite. And then in verse 2, he takes a Canaanite wife, and as we see in verses 3 through 5, he'll give birth, she'll give birth to three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And one note that might be helpful here, in verse 5, we see that Judah was in Kezib, or Kezib um, when she bore him. And this city name, it looks like it's derived from the Hebrew root word, which means to lie or to deceive. So bring this to your attention because this is possibly foreshadowing the deception to come. As we'll see in the following verses, Judah's going to promise to give his youngest son to Tamar, but he fails to follow through on that promise. As such, the name Kezib cues us into the reality that Judah deceives his daughter-in-law. He doesn't just fail to remember. He intentionally fails to follow through on his promise. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's just see what we have here. In verses 3 through 5, we have the birth of these three sons. And then in verse 6, the next thing we see is that Judah takes a wife for his firstborn son. Her name was Tamar. Presumably, she was a Canaanite, although the text does not say explicitly. Anyways, Tamar was married to Er. And as we read in verse 7, Judah's firstborn Er was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know what he did. We don't know the manifestation of his wickedness. But what we do see is he was wicked and the Lord put him to death. And not only does the Lord put Er to death, but he also puts his brother Onan to death as well. So after Er was put to death, in verse 8, we see that Judah tells Onan to go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. 
So this is a foreign concept to, to us today, at least here, what's called leveret marriage. It's the same idea that we see with Ruth and Boaz. So leveret marriage was a common practice in ancient civilizations, and essentially what would happen is if one of the brothers dies, the next brother in line would be um, the one to come and perform the husbandly duties to give his brother, his deceased brother, an heir. So leveret marriage remedied the disruption of inheritance caused by the premature death of a man before he produced an heir. So if a man dies before an heir is born, his brother would take up that duty so that an heir would be born for his brother. And as we see in verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So he did not fulfill his duties as a brother-in-law. So while he's certainly deceptive here, it's quite possible that he's acting out of greed. One commentator notes that he refused to impregnate Tamar because it would decrease his eventual inheritance share. You see, Onan realizes that the inheritance would have passed down from heir to his sons, but if heir has no sons, then now that inheritance will belong to him. So if Tamar is childless, that inheritance money belongs to Onan. Therefore, if he provides his brother an heir, then his inheritance would be reduced. As such, we read in verse 10 that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. So while the custom of leveret marriage, I mean, bears little application for us today, I'm not going to stand here and tell you to adopt this practice. Um, your children may not be happy about that, especially your boys. But we do see here the seriousness of sin. These men, they did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And what does the Lord do? He puts them to death. If we have an improper view of sin, then we'll say, that sounds a little bit harsh. That, that, that's a little unfair. Surely these men didn't deserve to die. But if we have a biblical understanding of sin, then we understand that sin is lawlessness and that the wages of sin is what? It is death. There's not one sin that does not deserve the eternal wrath of God. And it's not as though any of us inherit, well, well I'm sorry, it's not as though any of us are inherently good Yet sometimes we fall into sin. No, we are inherently evil. And we see this. We've already seen this in the book of Genesis. Chapter 6 and 8, we learn that the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are evil continually. And because of this condition, what did God do? He blotted man from the face of the earth. But we also know that God was merciful. He preserved a small few. Noah and his family. So when we see accounts like we do in Genesis 38, we see Er and Onan being struck down by the Lord, being put to death. It's right for us to be shocked. Not because good men die, but because we deserve the same fate as Er and Onan. So as we consider the cross of Christ, 
jumping a little bit forward, as we consider the cross of Christ Jesus, if there would be any hope of restoration from for fallen humanity, Jesus had to die. He had to die because the wages of sin is death. So Jesus died because our sin is so heinous. And it's in him alone that we have hope of being reconciled to God. But this hope for sinners is not wishful thinking. This hope is rooted in the certainty of his death, burial, and resurrection. He took our place. Those of us who deserve nothing less than what happened to Aaron Onan, he stood in our place. Yes, we will experience physical death unless the Lord returns, but we will experience physical death, but we will not experience that second death because of Jesus Christ, because he stood in our place. So while we ought to be shocked when we see sinners die because we deserve the same thing that the Lord put them to death, we don't have to stand in despair. We don't have to stand with, well, what do we do? What do you do? You turn to Christ. I was reading John Owen just this morning, or just last night, I can't remember. The days start to flow, fall, flow together. But he said, what do we do? I've, I've tried. He says, well, keep going to the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep turning to him. Keep looking to him. For he is the Savior of all men. Go to him with nothing in your hand. By faith. You alone, O oh God, are my rock and my refuge, my safe haven. Turn to him, not to yourself. So returning to our passage, where we've just seen the seriousness of sin, verse 11 here really sets the stage for a further display of wickedness. In verse 11, Judah is going to tell Tamar to return to her father's house. Now, background information looks like Judah was responsible. He should have taken care of her, but he sends her away to her father. And he says to remain a widow there until Shelah, my youngest son, grows up. So just from what we see in the text, from the contextual clues here, it really looks like Judah didn't just send her away for her youngest son to grow, for his youngest son to grow up. He did this with the intention to get rid of her. Judah doesn't know why his sons keep dying. Shelah, he's afraid, would die just like the others because he's assuming it's Tamar. He assumes that it's her. That if he gives his youngest son to Tamar, he'll just die too. You know, remember, Judah's living among the Canaanites. He's living like the Canaanites. Therefore, it looks like he imbibes in superstition deception, and as we'll see in the next section, sexual immorality, just like the Canaanites. But he's afraid that if he gives his son, you see it here in the middle, if he gives Shelah to Tamar, he feared that he would die like his brothers. I think it's fair to say that Judah is blind to the sin of his sons. He thinks it's Tamar. She's the problem. The problem's outside. But we know that's not the case. So then as we go to verses, now this next section, 12 through 19, the first few verses here, in 12 through 14, we see that several years have passed. So this, this whole chapter takes place over a couple of decades at least. So we've had Judah meet a woman, 
um, meet this Adulamite, have take a wife, have sons, give his sons to a woman to be married to, and then they've died. His youngest son um, will have grown up by the time we get into this next section. But in verse 12, Judah's wife has died, and we see after the days whenever Judah was comforted, meaning after the days of his mourning, he goes to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, and he goes with his friend Hirah, the Adulamite. Tamar, she hears of this. She was told about this, and so what does she do in verse 14? She takes off her widow's garments, covers herself with a veil, sits at the entrance of Aniam, because why? She heard that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she's been widowed all of these years. She's been waiting for Judah's son to grow up, but Judah, he shunned her. He didn't want to give his son to her because he was afraid his son might die. And now Tamar, who's childless, she's going to do whatever she can to obtain a child, even if it means deceiving her father-in-law. And she's successful. For as we see in verse 15, Judah He didn't recognize her. He thought she was a prostitute. Her face was covered. He didn't know who she was. Now, you might be thinking, surely he recognized her voice or something. Surely he knew who she was. But don't forget, sin is not rational. Judah here is overcome by lust and by his sensual appetite. Therefore, he gives himself to Tamar for a price. In verse 17, he tells her that he'll give her a young goat. He makes this promise. Now, it's ironic. Because Judah made a promise before to Tamar. He said that he'll give Shelah, his youngest son, to Tamar. Now, I know he doesn't realize, but he didn't follow through on that promise. And now he's making a promise to the very same person that he'll send this young goat. But this time, Tamar will not walk away empty-handed. She's going to request a pledge, that pledge being his signet, his cord, his staff. Modern day, it'd be like, give me your driver's license. Give me some form of identification. And Judah gives these things to her. Remember, sin is not rational. Sin is not wise. Judah's overcome by sensual appetite, and he gives a pledge for the payment for her services. And so after this immoral and deceptive act takes place, in verse 19, we see Tamar going away, and she puts on the garments of her widowhood. So far, we've seen Judah deceive Tamar. Now Tamar deceives Judah. Both are deceptive and sexually immoral. At the end of verse 18, we do have an important note that we'll come back to. She did conceive by him, but we'll come back to that. But what we have in this section are acts of deception and sexual immorality, but also sets the, this sets the stage for the revealing of Judah's hypocrisy. In verses 20 through 23, Judah attempts to fulfill his pledge. He sends his friend out to do his work, to deliver the goat. He doesn't find her. He asks the men where she is, and they said, there's no woman like her here. So he returns back to Judah, verse 22, and and says, I haven't found her. 
The men says, there's no cult prostitute here. And then Judah replies, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So a couple observations here. Judah, first, he was not alone in this. He's behaving like a Canaanite, remember, and he had a Canaanite doing his dirty work. We don't know exactly why he sent his friend to deliver the gift to get back his pledge, but what we do see here is that Judah is a friend of a fellow sinner. Second, Judah's worried that they will be laughed at. Maybe this explains why Judah sent his friend. He's concerned for his reputation. I mean, that's why he doesn't want his friend to keep looking for her. Because he's afraid he'll become the laughing stock of town. Just think about the type of man we have here. Judah veered away from his brothers and from the ways of his father. He's a friend of the Canaanites and he walks in their ways. Unlike his father, unlike his grandfather, and unlike his great-grandfather, he married a Canaanite woman. He's deceptive, he's sexually immoral. And not only that, he is so concerned with his reputation that he's not even concerned with his character. He cares what people think about him, but he's not concerned about his own heart. Therefore, he tells the Adulamite to quit the search for fear that they'll be laughed at. He's overly concerned with how others perceive him, and he doesn't seem to be overly concerned with how God perceives him. I know the same could be said of some of you. You're more concerned with how others perceive you than you are with the perception of a holy God. But let me warn you, God sees all. He knows all things. He knows all to the deepest recesses of your heart. And your only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have no need to worry about being exposed. As we see in Hebrews 4, the word of God does expose us. As we get into God's word, it exposes. It's like that two-edged sword. But as we see, it, I, I would implore you, I will implore you, be exposed today, not in the day of judgment. Be exposed now, not in that day when God judges the secret thoughts of your heart. Your only hope is the righteousness of Christ. Not something within you. Not something you could do. Don't be like Judah here who is worried he'd be laughed at. Look to Christ who knows your dirtiest secrets, who saves sinners of the worst kind. Look to him. So returning to Judah. So three months go by in verse 24. He learns that Tamar is pregnant by immorality. And knowing what we know, Judah's reaction is extremely hypocritical. When he learns of this, at the end of verse 24, he says, bring her out and let her be burned. There is precedent for burning in the Levitical law. 
but it was for the daughters of priests. And even then, this was extreme punishment under Moses, under his law. Yet Judah, in his self-righteousness, wants her brought out and he wants her burned because she's been immoral. This is certainly a case of plank meeting the speck in the other person's eye. By no means am I downplaying Tamar's offense here, but Judah is the greater offender. He's the epitome of Romans 2.1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And then in verse 3, Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Judah is standing as judge, but he does the very same thing. He's judging. And I've observed over the years, and this is only personal observation, so take it for what it's worth. But I've observed that those who are the quickest to point out the sins of others are usually the ones who don't want to be found out themselves. Judah here, he does not approach Tamar with humility and compassion, knowing that he too deserves the full wrath of God. He fools himself, thinks that he can stand in the place of judge and determine that she should be burned. Burn her, bring her out here and burn her. But little does he know that this is about to expose him for who he really is. Just picture, here's the picture. This is a public scene. Most likely this takes place at the city gates where public matters were dealt with. As such, Judah calls for Tamar to be brought out. And as she was brought out, we read in verse 25, she sends word to her father-in-law. She says, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. You can just imagine the shock on his face. He sought to avoid humiliation, but humiliation found him. And once Judah identifies these items, verse 26, he says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. At face value, this might seem like an empty confession. Maybe it is. But Judah recognizes that he did not fulfill his commitment to Tamar. Many will use Judah's statement. I've read a lot of commentators who use this statement to justify Tamar's actions. But I can't stand here and do that. This whole situation is tainted by sin. Yet Judah recognizes that Tamar is more righteous than he is. He wanted to execute her by burning her body, but now he realizes he's the one with the, the plank, the log in his eye. He confesses that he did not fulfill his commitment. And then at the end of verse 26, we see what could be repentance. He did not know her again. I'll let you decide for yourself whether that's the fruit of repentance or not. But the next time we see Judah, we see a changed man. 
The next time we see Judah, as I've mentioned earlier in Genesis 34, he pledges to give his own life in the place of his younger brother. As one commentator notes, the present story marks a stage in the development of Judah as a person from someone who advocates for the sale of Joseph to a man who later stands up as a substitute for his younger brother, a transformation in which Tamar plays a key role. Judah deserves the very same fate as that of Er and Onan, his oldest sons. But instead of being struck down by God, Judah's shown mercy. Judah's wicked, should have been struck down by the Lord just like his sons, but instead of being struck down, he is shown mercy. And when we look at the rest of Genesis, we can say that he's used by God in the deliverance of his people from certain death amid a severe famine. Because Joseph had a requirement that Benjamin come back, and Judah says, if he doesn't come back, it's on me, my life. In a way, Judah will serve as a Christ-like figure, willing to lay down his life in the place of his brother. When we get to Genesis 34, we'll see remarkable transformation in his life. But this chapter, Genesis 38, is here for more than Judah's transformation. This chapter is here because Judah is the ancestor of King David and the ancestor of King Jesus, according to the flesh. That's the significance of verses 27 through 30, where we have the birth of these twin boys. In verse 27, we see that Tamar is pregnant with twins. Verse 28, one of the twins puts his hand out first. They tie a scarlet thread on the hand. Verse 29, he pulls it back, and then Perez, or Perez, he comes first because he made a breach. And then in verse 30, the brother with the scarlet thread, Zerah, was born. Not the first time we've seen twins born in the book of Genesis. You remember Jacob and Esau. Conflict in the womb, the younger brother striving to be first. And then here we have something similar. One brother putting out his hand, then the other brother seemingly bursting forth to be first. And that's all we know about the character of these two boys. Nothing else is said about these two boys other than some important news. Both of them will have sons, and their sons will have sons. And from the line of Perez will come kings such as David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah, and all of these kings will point forward to the king of kings who will be born according to the flesh from the very same line. You see, the story of Judah is not here to provide us with a moral lesson. The story of Judah is here to provide us with a a, a marker on the trail, a direction sign saying, look to Jesus Christ. It points us to King Jesus who redeems sinners like Judah. Judah veered off the course. He turned aside from his brothers and became a friend of sinners. He did not merely walk among sinners. He walked in the way of sinners. And we can imply from this passage that his negligence 
to lead his family in the ways of God brought reproach upon his household. His oldest two sons die because they're wicked in the sight of the Lord. As noted earlier, this reminds us of the seriousness of sin. Sin is not something to be trifled with. Sin is deadly. But yet Judah places his family in the city of sin. But not only is Judah negligent in leading his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness, he's unrighteous himself. He's deceptive. He's sexually immoral. He cares way too much what others think about him. Yet God uses this man through a truly disturbing account to bring forth children from Judah. And one of these sons will be the ancestor of King, G- of King David and ultimately of King Jesus. Unless you think Judah was the only one from this lineage who was engaged in sexual immorality, you can't forget about King David. And it was from this line that Jesus was born. In our earthly wisdom, we might say that the Son of God should have been born from a more righteous family without all of the sin and without all the depravity. Well, first of all, I don't know where you're going to find such a lineage. But second, as John Calvin notes, it was fitting that the race from which he sprang should be dishonored by reproaches, that we, being content with him alone, might seek nothing beside him, that we might not seek earthly splendor in him, seeing that carnal ambition is always too much inclined to such a course. Just think about what Calvin is saying here. It's not the honor of this lineage to which we ought to look. It is to Christ that we ought to look. As Calvin notes, Christ did not come to fulfill carnal ambitions, his nor ours. He came to save sinners. As such, we see his utter abasement as he was born from a sinful lineage. And this shows us that he was willing to go to such great lengths to save sinners. As one commentator notes, he was willing to be born of and associated with the clan of Judah. I mean, what we know about Judah, he was willing to be associated with this people. The willingness to be born from the line of Judah shows us that Jesus Christ was willing to be associated with with sinners. And isn't that characteristic of his earthly ministry? The one who is holy became a friend of sinners. But unlike Judah, he was not tainted by sin. He could walk among sinners and remain pure and holy. You know, the accusations made against Jesus were true. He was accused of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And he was. And while these accusations were true, we must not misunderstand this. Jesus was not a friend of sinners in the sense that he took part in their sinful ways, as was Judah. Jesus became a friend of sinners to pull such sinners out of the miry clay. Jesus did not come to dwell in sin, but to turn sinners to God. And now for sinners who have turned to him, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you 
friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. When Jesus says that his disciples are his friends, this does not reduce Jesus to our standard. This magnifies his amazing grace. The King of Kings now calls sinners like Judah and Tamar his friend. Now, I know there are some of you here today who do not know Jesus as a friend. Instead, he is your enemy. For you, you must turn to him and be saved from his wrath. Because I'll say this, there's no greater enemy than the Lamb of God. There are other here, others here today who are comfortable with the idea of Jesus. But you're not comfortable with Jesus. I pray that God will open the eyes of your heart to the wonderful friend that we have in Jesus. And that you can go to him and he will never turn you away. Oftentimes when people speak of Jesus as being a friend of sinners, and we, we, we do the same. We say Jesus was a friend of sinners, therefore we need to go out and befriend sinners. But we must be careful with this. Thomas Adams, a Puritan, he warns us, he said, we must be among them as strangers. To pass through an infected place is one thing, to dwell in it another. We have to be on guard, for we are easily drawn into the way of sinners. We're like Judah. We're easily drawn into the way of sinners. But thanks be to God that what applies to us does not apply to the Son of God. We're so easily infected, so easily corrupted, but Jesus Christ comes among us and we are infected by His grace. He effectually comes to us and we cannot resist His friendship. He comes to us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness and gives us His righteousness. Being born from the line of Judah reminds us that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to call sinners to himself. And now, by the amazing grace of God, he calls us his friends. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, calls us friends. And this friendship is not predicated upon our worth, but upon his. There is not a friend like him in the world. Whereas Judah went down and became friends with the Canaanites and took up their ways, Jesus comes down to sinners, becomes friends with us, and takes us up to himself. And now because he is our friend, we can turn to him. We can turn to him, the one who knows our every weakness. And as the friend of friends, he is so gentle for he knows our frame. That's why we can truly take refuge in the Almighty God who calls us friends. Right now, Jesus is a friend whom we cannot see visibly. Yet he is the best of friends. But one day when we see him in all his glory, we will realize what a friend we truly have in him. 
As Jared Wilson notes in his book titled Friendship with the Friend of Sinners, there's no more dangerous enemy to have than Jesus, but there's also no truer friend. If you reject him, he will come in judgment. He will pour out his infinite wrath upon you. That's why we beg you over and over to look to him, to come to Christ, to call upon his name. But for all who are calling upon the name of Jesus, there's no truer friend than him. As Jared Wilson goes on to note, Jesus calls his disciples friends before his arrest, before his crucifixion, before the sorrowful disappointment of his burial, knowing full well his friends are about to fail him. He knows they're going to betray him, abandon him, and deny him, and he still calls them friends. I open this sermon with a Reformation theme and introduction about the church veering off course, looking to new things. We could even say Judah looking to new things, new ways. Going back to the Reformation, the Reformers were raised up by God. They did the opposite. They returned to the ancient paths, to the old ways. And some of you here are veering off course. And while you might be tempted to look for something new, I exhort you to look to the friend who sticks closer than a brother. The friend who is tried and true. Look to Jesus, who was born among sinners, who walked among sinners, yet was not defiled by sinners. Look to Jesus, for he will stand beside you. He will guide you. And he will help you along the way. And the joy that is his. As the infinite God, he does not keep to himself. He's the friend who shares that infinite joy with his friends. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We ought to be awestruck that those who were your enemies are now called friends of your son. And the only reason we can be friends of Christ is because of Jesus Christ, whose death, burial, and resurrection has been united to us by your spirit. Oh, I pray that we would not lose the significance of your grace, the infinite, holy, sovereign God descending down to us, befriending us. Oh, I pray that we would treasure the relationship we have with you, O oh God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that we would walk by the Spirit, be a people of humility, knowing that in Christ... Our sins are forgiven. His righteousness is ours. And he is not going to be surprised by who we really are. Jesus knows our frame. He knows what is in us, yet still gave himself for us. Oh, help us to rejoice in that very truth. Help us to look to you through Christ our Lord. By the power of your spirit, we pray. 
Amen.